0: Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin.
1: This is Robbie Martin. Welcome.
0: And today we're joined by Kevin Gostola, the managing editor of Shadowproof. Kevin Gostola is a journalist known for his work on whistleblowers, WikiLeaks, national security, civil liberties, and digital freedom. He's the managing editor for Shadowproof and is the co host of the podcast Unauthorized Disclosure. He's been one of the lead journalists extensively covering the Julian Assange case. So before we get in the nuts and bolts of the hearing right now, can you talk about why you think there's this media blackout about such a historic case, considering its implications for all journalists? I mean, you really seem to be one of the only journalists covering it here.
2: I'm actually willing to debate people and suggest that we may be better off if they just ignore it, uh, because they might actually cover it in a, incorrectly as in not understand what's happening in the proceedings or they may shamefully cover it in ways that are uh, that disinform and are are potentially uh, assassinating the character of Julian Assange you know one day that we had quite a lot of coverage there was uh, an, a supposed as they described it outburst from Julian Assange in the courtroom And in fact, it was no more than him being tremendously frustrated that the judge, Vanessa Barretzer, would not ask the prosecutor, the lead prosecutor, James Lewis, to move on. He had asked the same question at least seven or eight times of a human rights attorney named Clive Stafford Smith, who uh, was the uh, co-founder of Reprieve. Uh, this human rights charity that is in great work on drone strikes, as well as uh, representing survivors, representing people who are torture survivors, uh, Guantanamo Bay prisoners. Um, He asked the same question, and I don't even remember specifically what it was. It doesn't quite matter, but Julian Assange was deeply frustrated, and, and he said something to the judge about it. And then the court had a short break. The... His defense team talked to him and then we came back and the judge scolded him and said if he did that again, she may have to remove him from the extradition trial, which would be unfortunate because he would like to follow it. Uh, And of course, I mentioned that he's in the back of this courtroom in a glass box and forced to be separate from his defense team because the judge rejected a request from him back in February to be allowed to sit with his attorneys. And this is the nature of the UK system. So, yeah, there is a lack of reporting on the part of the US media. If I had to diagnose it, I would say it's because they've never had solidarity for Julian Assange. They see him as different. Uh, He's not the good reporter. Uh, he's, He's not somebody who acts as a gatekeeper for the US military and national security agencies. He's not somebody who is a state-identified journalist in the sense that he uh, champions the U.S. foreign policy agenda or even the domestic policy agenda of the United States. He defies the two-party system. He doesn't have any allegiance to a Democratic Party or a Republican Party, and he doesn't neatly fit into any boxes, and so upsets and frustrates the journalists that are working for the more established media institutions. And then that trickles down and has an effect in influencing the way progressive media or even left media cover. I think there's a misperception about Julian Assange that has grown in the last three years among the left, that he somehow has transformed himself into a kind of like right wing, even white supremacist journalist that he was cozy with uh, Donald Trump Jr. in the DMs and that somehow suggests that he has abandoned his principles and Roger Stone was lying about WikiLeaks and what he knew. And uh, there's been a lot of press that has tied Julian Assange's work in the last few years to the Trump campaign. But I think that's completely false and uh, uh, unfair and it should not undermine. I mean, it's it's false, first of all, but. Uh, we should not forget the work that was done for seven or eight years. And it doesn't erase that work, especially the leaks that were published from Chelsea Manning, which are at the core of this extradition trial.
1: It's interesting you say that, Kevin, because, yeah, I was going to ask you, um, you know, obviously the establishment has totally, you know, easy to label reasons why they wouldn't want to be covering this, or they'd maybe only want to be covering it to sort of catch assange in a bad moment or make him seem like he's having outbursts as you say which they really weren't um but i am sort of i I guess i want to get a little bit more from you on this idea that you know that there was a concerted campaign not in left-wing media but to basically get people in progressive or left-wing media who used to support assange to sort of either disassociate themselves from him or feel that like you said that he had somehow become some kind of right-wing ideologue. And I'm just wondering from your perspective in this, you've been covering this, you know, obviously closer than we have. You've been you following this closer than we have. So and you and you know a lot of these the general climate of that scene, the progressive scene. Would it like speak more about that and I don't know. I mean, I know I hear what you're saying. Do you feel it's really unfair? Do you think that that could have been corrected on some level? Like do you think somebody could have been like, "Look, this is all about the actual leaks he's being indicted, you know, for something that's, that affects all journalists. Let's separate the two things, you know, his, what we think about his personality from what he's done. I mean, do you think that that we've lost an opportunity to gain that support back?
2: Well, so I think uh, the issue is whether this is going to ultimately help people to better understand what's at stake in Julian Assange's case. And I wonder, I, I think it's an open question worthy of discussion on this show as to whether we can convince media at this point that it is important for them to cover if they haven't already. Like, I don't know if it's possible to convince CNN uh, people, <laughs> pro- producers there, that you know, Jim Acosta should treat this with the same significance that he does when he's bounced out of the White House press room and not allowed to hear Donald Trump's press conference because they're tired of him being a nuisance to Donald Trump. I don't know if we should see it. I don't know that they're going to change their view. Uh, you know, the, they, they seem to think it's a huge assault on them when the press briefings get a little unruly. Uh, Meanwhile, this is happening in the backdrop, and they don't give it much attention. And I just question whether you're going to win them over at this stage. Uh, And part of the problem is you could qualify it, and certainly a lot of politicians have qualified the way that they recognize that there are significant dangers in allowing this case to proceed in the United States— Uh, But I, I recall someone like progressive Senator Elizabeth Warren saying things like, well, you don't have to support Julian Assange, but, and the problem is when you start doing that, you're feeding into the character assassination or the character mobbing that is fully recognized by UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, Niels Meltzer, as being a critical part of what four countries have been able to do to Julian Assange in ganging up on him. And those countries are the U.S. and then Ecuador, the United Kingdom, and Sweden. And you, when you break it down, we would not be at this extradition trial right now if there wasn't a sophisticated um, smearing campaign that had taken hold Uh, And and I don't know that it was deliberately organized. I think it just kind of gelled organically. But from the very outset, in 2010 particularly, you had executive editor of the New York Times, Bill Keller, uh, writing columns about Julian Assange and how he thought he was kind of a bag lady and unkempt and he didn't take care of his smelly socks and he doesn't do... Uh, and and talking about how he was someone who was hard to work with and he wouldn't consider him to be conventional part of the media and Julian Assange was always a source he wasn't a media partner and all of these other places were uh, laying it on and then you have people piling on and saying WikiLeaks put informants lives at risk because they didn't manage the documents well so then you've got Uh, a a smearing of the process in which they engaged in journalism around the documents, which this extradition trial, by the way, is proving was completely uncalled for on the part. Yeah. Uncalled for, for these, and even human rights organizations got duped into feeding into it. Uh, Groups like Amnesty International bought into this idea that WikiLeaks just didn't care about confidential human sources working with the US military or didn't care about activists that you know quote unquote are promoting democracy and uh, end quote uh, in these countries that the u.s likes to do such activities and and you know they they were always sensitive to the fact that people might be in trouble if this information was exposed according to journalists we're hearing from and I just think that you know a lot of this, is far gone. I I think it's fair for you. I said this to my co-host Rania Kalik on unauthorized disclosure this this week. I said, you know, if you want to spend your energy trying to get people to recognize that this is a priority and they should be covering Julian Assange, uh, that's fine. But uh, I I have a limited amount of energy, and I don't know that I can spend it trying to assess why people at this point don't recognize why this is significant. And also there are half a dozen or so really excellent alternative and independent media journalists, not just yes. me who are doing this work. And I would much rather see them get platforms to talk about this and instead, uh, and, and allow them to share their reporting rather than I'm, I'm going to use a word, but I'm not trying to negatively speak about both of you, but rather than obsessing about why the media, um, actually functions in the way that I suppose it's intended to, because I don't think at this point that our U.S. media institutions and in the establishment, um, and also institutions in like Australia that should be caring about the fact that an Australian citizen could be extradited under the Espionage Act and have his work targeted, because that will have a great impact potentially on Australian journalists that might do investigations of the U.S. military and uh, U.S. national security agencies as they relate to cooperation with Australia on um, whatever they're doing in U.S. wars because they typically Australia is a part of coalition forces and they are implicated in war crimes as well um, so I just don't think that we're going to convince U.S. media institutions and it might be better If we really want to save Julian Assange, it might be better to just focus on people who are out there doing this work and are awake and are knowledgeable about what is at stake.
0: Right. That's another thing that people forget is Julian Assange is an Australian citizen. But I agree with you, Kevin. I mean, this is the problem with the corporate media as a whole. I mean, people waste so much of their time trying to aggressively lobby the corporate media to do its job (laughs) when really it's functioning exactly the way as intended. Um, when it doesn't cover, you know, coups or all of these things that we wish that it covered fairly, that, that's precisely the point, is that it doesn't. Um, but yeah, I, I, th- I do think the media blackout is especially interesting because it really just says a lot. I mean, the, the absence and the silence says a lot because of the extraordinary implications of this case. What you just said about his character assassination is really on point, and it makes people not care we all know how much Julian Assange was heralded as a hero during the Bush administration because of the collateral murder uh, video and all of the Iraq war logs. And now he's considered a traitor, right? By the same kind of establishment um, liberals and stuff like that because of his alleged help with the election of Donald Trump. And it's really unfortunate because it, it overshadows how, Shocking, these implications are of the case, and how widespread and wide reaching they are for the journalistic community as a whole. Um, you see these stories kind of eking through now and again, talking about, hey, this, this has really, really grave implications for a fr- for free press, um, but it just seems like the gravity of this case is not really um, understood. Uh, and I, I, it's just crazy to me. I mean, can you briefly talk about what the implications are? of the case like what what does this mean if he is extradited to the u.s and really slapped with these 18 charges and facing 175 years in prison
2: yeah and so first just to be very clear uh we had witnesses in the second week of the extradition trial who are u.s based defense attorneys and both of them did the calculation and looked at there's a sentencing table that the U.S. Justice Department has to come up with sentences and, and how much they believe they should recommend for a defendant. Uh, Julian Assange would be what you call a national security defendant. Um, that's the kind of prosecution they're bringing against him. And then from that, we heard from this the, these attorneys, uh, specifically one, his name's Eric Lewis, who has represented some international uh detainees or international people who have been prosecuted one of them was uh his last name was katala who was brought to the united states and accused of being involved in the benghazi attacks back in 2012 so he has a fair amount of experience with um, these kinds of national security cases and he's he went through the different enhancements that can be added or or i suppose you call them adjustments that's what the justice department uses as their word and it's how you can quickly get closer and closer to a a, a life sentence by adding these enhancements to someone who is accused of a crime. Uh, So for example, uh, Julian Assange has a special skill, has special skills. If you use your special skill to commit the crime, that can be called an enhancement. Um, So maybe knowing how to move around computers and, and hack them since they're accusing him of that kind of a violation, maybe they would enhance his sentence because he's using a special skill in what they consider to be a criminal way. Um, there's a m- person named in the latest version of the indictment, the fresh extradition request. His name is Ziggy. Um, he's uh, from Iceland. He was uh, he worked a little bit for the FBI, but more importantly, he's been accused um, and I think convicted of pedophilia, and he was involved in committing um, crimes such as embezzling $50,000 from the WikiLeaks store and selling merchandise without authorization from people who were running the store. Uh, This was several years ago, and he was brought up on charges in Iceland. So he's a criminal, and he's the kind of informant that the U.S. government typically works with but he was a minor at the time and if you if you're involved in a conspiracy with more than like five individuals and one of them is a minor uh, that minor you know that's seen as endangering uh, someone who's under the who's not an adult and so you can enhance the sentence um, i won't keep going but you can see how there are several things they could start to tack on to him in order to give him effectively a life sentence. He's 49 years old, and if he's brought to the U.S., it's believed he would likely get a 30 to 40-year sentence based on the testimony we've heard from defense attorneys um, over the past week. And what I want to emphasize to you is that in the span of the two weeks that we've had with the extradition trial, now obviously there are probably two more weeks left left So, we can see if the US position continues to change. But what I can say is, in the first week, the US government was signaling that they were still going to maintain Julian Assange was not a journalist who did not have First Amendment rights. But alarmingly, and this is why I think most of all, we could say there should not be a media blackout on this, and and why we could at least say that even if you are corporate press, you ought to at least care. About the First Amendment in the U.S. Constitution, uh, which I, you know, I would think even CNN or MSNBC would 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 care about. They certainly have made complaints against Donald Trump when they believe he's violating the Constitution. And so we heard in this past week that the prosecutor um, now believes that the Espionage Act does not preclude any sort of prosecutions of publishers or journalists for the publication of leaked national defense information. Wait, which,
1: wait just really quickly, Kevin, you're, and that doesn't mean o- only classified, right?
2: Exactly. So I, okay. you, I, that's where I was going to go next. So sorry, sorry, sorry. National defense information is this broad category. That's the word. Those are the words in the Espionage Act. It isn't Only classified information. It could be sensitive, but unclassified. It could be any information that they believe connects to national security operations or U.S. military operations. Uh, They might even argue it's a stretch, but they might even say, you disrupted diplomatic relations by revealing this, and that made it harder for us to protect national security. So that'd be a very indirect way To say that that information was covered. And so essentially the prosecutor said to uh, a very good um, attorney who actually worked under the late great human rights attorney, Michael Ratner, uh, who was the president emeritus of center for constitutional rights, great advocate for WikiLeaks. He was on their team Um, arguing points of international law while Julian Assange was in the Ecuador embassy and uh, defending him. He tragically passed away in 2016 from cancer. But his associate, Kerry Shankman, gave testimony in the extradition trial. And he, I understand, co-authored a book that is forthcoming on the political history of the Espionage Act. And he gave testimony about the Espionage Act, crucial to helping the judge in this court understand what this law is and how it functions in the united states and the prosecutor flat out said that um she believes that this is what arrived at so shankman told her that his position is the espionage act is so broadly worded as to allow for the prosecution of mainstream press and so dobbin rather than finding that troubling, says, okay, we have common ground that the state of the law is such that publishers can be prosecuted under the Espionage Act for publication of national defense information. To me, that is one of the more chilling things to come out of these proceedings in the past two weeks. She also was cheering the fact that the case where the Pentagon Papers came before the Supreme Court, uh, or the New York Times came before the Supreme Court, back in the uh, 1971, and they were facing the threat of prior restraint, which is the government was going to try to prevent them from publishing the Pentagon Papers. She was celebrating that, she said, quote, this left the door open for such a prosecution, for, for prosecuting a journalist. And so now they are leaning into this. They are saying that how do they? What, what do you mean? How do they explain that? Well, first off, she's actually wrong, as Carrie Shankman pointed out, because that wasn't the issue that was before the court. The issue was before the court over whether the government could stop a media organization from publishing. But it wasn't about an Espionage Act case. It wasn't about you know, whether you could prosecute somebody under the law, which is what Shankman said. So I don't think she's correct. But that attitude, the attitude right. that this case is somehow leaving the door open for bringing a case against Julian Assange and any other journalists, uh, is, it's chilling to me. And uh, I mean, wow. we, we just have to be abundantly clear in our conversation. There's never been a case like this before brought against a publisher or journalist. It's been threatened. There were multiple examples that I heard about in the past week. Uh, that I'd be happy to just you know, gloss over if if that's of, it, of any interest. But we've never gotten to the point where someone was actually charged under the Espionage Act who was a journalist. It's always been government insiders, um, as, they, as the government refers to them, so whistleblowers or leakers. Uh, there were uh, spies in the more classic sense earlier on in the history of the law, although the law, I will say, has always been tremendously political. When it was introduced and passed under President Woodrow Wilson. It was all about, it, it was used very aggressively. Over 2,000 people were pursued simply for dissenting against the U.S.'s involvement in World War One.
1: Yeah, I mean, it does seem that one of the main outcomes of this, Kevin, will just be a blanket, very impactful, chilling effect um, where it'll become so open-ended that what could be actually prosecuted under the Espionage Act, the people will just simply be afraid to do journalism. And so I guess, I mean, just from your own personal perspective, um, before we get into the specific charges and what, and, you know, some of the more weeds in this, just from your own personal perspective, like how long have you just been worried about the consequences of an Assange or WikiLeaks related indictment for simply leaking government documents. I mean, I know it's been a general topic of conversation for almost a decade, but it's playing out and actually it might happen the, the way that we've feared for that long now. Like it's playing out right now. Is it playing out the way that you expected? Is it worse? Is it better? And I guess just speak to that personal fear that you might've had or known about, you know, going, cause you've been covering this for a super long time. So Speak to that a little bit as well.
2: So I think it's worse than we expected. Uh, and that's been a re- realization that I have from wow. the past week. Uh, and I'll, I'll, reference, <sighs> uh, I'll, I'll reference Kerry Shankman because uh, he even said to the prosecutor that back in 2013, when we had uh, this Washington Post article... And it mentioned that the or that President Barack Obama's administration had come up against what they called the First Amendment problem. We were hearing from sources, uh, although unnamed, but this was done um, by someone who I think has a pretty good reputation for doing these types of stories, uh, sorry, Horowitz. Um, And it seems legit. And we've had witnesses during this extradition trial that feels like it was a solidly reported story. Uh, And and it seemed like it might have been a way for the Obama administration to get something out that they really didn't want to say publicly because it would have seemed unpopular within the D.C. culture. And so they signaled that they had come up against this issue Of how they could prosecute Julian Assange without having to then turn around and indict people at the New York Times or anyone else who handled these documents. Or I suppose potentially we could even include Edward Snowden and the NSA documents in this, because if you prosecute Julian Assange, then for, for that material, then the NSA might want to get in on it and have journalists involved in publishing Snowden documents at the Washington Post, The New York Times, The Guardian. Obviously, the intercept could be brought into this as well. That the, yeah. there that that there should be prosecutions of them. You know, other agencies might be showing up to the Justice Department's offices to say, "Why don't you go after these people?" Wow. So, um, so to me, there's a lot more. Right. This is this is a much more troubling than I ever thought because Kerry said that he yeah. did not think the publications from Chelsea Manning were ever going to be at the core of criminal charges against Julian Assange they that there was going to be there there was possibility that other criminal charges could be brought against Julian Assange but the fact that they would go after the very thing that made Wikileaks so popular that most people even people in the establishment believed was protected uh that uh, nobody disputes mm-hmm. you know we have dispute we have uh, ridiculous people like Nera Tandon who think you're not allowed to publish hacked materials and she's completely wrong and that somehow it's irresponsible to publish emails from political campaigns during contentious presidential elections. And she could not be more wrong. But what we do have is unanimous agreement that there is nothing wrong with what WikiLeaks did in publishing the collateral murder video, the cables, uh, the war logs, even though they might gra- uh, they might have nitpicks about um, how certain sources were exposed to harm, and and obviously I said earlier in this conversation, I don't think they understand it well what really went on with the material, but they don't disagree that that material was valuable to improving our understanding of the Afghan Afghanistan and Iraq wars, of of understanding that war crimes and torture were being committed. We had fifteen thousand civilian deaths that were exposed by the Iraq war logs that were not known previously, and they don't dispute the value of having a massive archive from the State Department that tells us how diplomacy is being conducted in our name and revealed so many stories, um, and they continue to become be a, a, a huge repository of information that scholars and academics are using for their work on U.S. foreign policy and that people around the world are using to better understand how the U.S. functions in uh, in international relations and international politics. And, and yet Donald Trump's administration has taken this step and indicted Julian Assange and pursued this prosecution aggressively. Uh, I believe it has to do with the fact that the CIA, uh, particularly when Mike Pompeo became CIA director, he singled out WikiLeaks for being what he ter- he termed in his speech a hostile non-state intelligence agency. Yep. And uh, that was a sign right there that the crosshairs were going to be put on Julian Assange. That was a sign. Uh, J- uh, Jeff Beauregard Sessions, as attorney general, was someone who passionately loathed and despised leaks. He didn't make any secret about that. He was one of the rare senators in Congress who supported having a law that would resemble the Official Secrets Act where you could criminalize simply anyone for publishing classified information. He spoke about this and he sounded quite um, out of his gourd, but this was the way this was this was someone who then got elevated to a position in the Attorney General i mean in the justice department and then he was able to actually reopen and not only did he reopen the investigation into assange but he accelerated and and expanded the number of leak investigations under the espionage act he re uh he he expanded the fbi's uh counterintelligence uh unit in order to investigate more leakers and they were doing like three times the investigations um a year a year after obama's administration so the the machinery and all of the framework that was engineered and and very much pioneered by the obama administration in their war on whistleblowers and the way they expanded and developed an insider threat program after chelsea manning and then edward snowden released information to us all cuz they wanted to hunker down and protect and and, and, and lock up any sort of holes where lower level employees might try to speak to the press. Because let's keep in mind, this isn't about high ranking officials. This is all about controlling what people who are in the lower echelons of government have to say. People who don't have any uh, Leadership—they're not—they're—they're they're, they're not worried about a, a, a accountability. Lower-level people who are possibly bureaucrats or career government employees—they're not trying to enrich themselves constantly every day. These are people who wake up and work nine-to-five jobs in government, and then turn around and see something that they can't tolerate, so they speak up, and they do so at great risk to themselves and. Jeff Sessions accelerated and expanded the kinds of leak prosecutions, listening to Trump, who was very vengeful and wanted to lash out at anyone who was talking to the press about what his administration was doing. He said, we have to control this. And that eventually led to, I believe, this investigation. Bill Barr was brought in after uh, Jeff Sessions left um, with his, you know— Tail between his legs because Donald Trump had beaten him down, and uh, Bill Barr is now very much on board with going after Julian Assange. Um, these are people in the Trump administration who have called for Julian Assange's execution. They, they, you can go back to 2010 and find them on the record saying that. Uh, so I'll conclude my long answer here. But it's just this is this is this is how we've gotten to this point and it's and I actually don't think, you know, on one hand, you can say that Barack Obama created this, but on the other hand, I actually have watched the last two weeks and I must insist that we distinguish between Barack Obama and Donald Trump because the fact that they made different choices with Julian Assange has deeply frustrated the prosecution. I, I must tell you, I've been watching the prosecutors are very frustrated that there is there, there are media reports from 2013. Um, and also when they indicted Julian Assange, there were people who resigned from the Justice Department and said they did not agree with charging Julian Assange. So the fact that there are these news articles that prove this is a political case has made it very difficult for prosecutors. Uh, they at least think it's a nuisance.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, Donald Trump's on the record. I don't know if you're inferring to him, but that he said Julian Assange should be executed um, back, I, yes. I think, with Fox and Friends. But that that's what's so, I guess, ironic is one word to put it. Um, the fact that Donald Trump is doing this, right? His administration is finally going after Assange in the way that we all feared this whole time. And that's what's so bizarre about the lack of coverage from people who claim to hate Trump and who jump on everything that Trump does considering the implications. So that's just kind of a weird side note (laughs) that, you know, Trump is doing this. It's putting all media at risk, but still you don't care because of your personal hatred for Assange, because of him allegedly helping Donald Trump. I mean, it's just such a bizarre uh, logic there, but I wanted to quickly talk about the charges really briefly Um, Nils Melzer, I was reading this article where he was talking about the charges, the UN special rapporteur, um, talking about how 17 of the 18 are for political espionage, but it's classified as a political offense, which doesn't, I guess, goes in contradiction with the extradition treaty between the US and the UK, which explicitly prohibits being extradited for political offenses. Um, I don't know how likely that's going to play into whether or not the judge grants extradition. I think that the judge probably will. And even if by some miracle they don't, the U.S., of course, can appeal the decision, start the process all over again. But I guess just talk about those 17 charges, how they play into the extradition treaty, and then also the 18th charge, which, of course, is the hacking charge, even though Assange never hacked anything. Um, you know, only just help Chelsea Manning decode this password where Chelsea already had access to the entire system. So briefly discuss that.
2: Yeah, so I just want to make clear that it's my position that Julian Assange will be extradited to the United States unless the legal team for him is successful in persuading the judge to do differently. In other words, the way that the extradition trial unfolds, the prosecution Is under no obligation to present any case, Um, and um, you know they put forward relevant information that is supposed to allege a crime. And if the judge believes that they have relevant information that alleges a crime, then he's going to be extradited. And so what we're seeing right now is chipping away at that and making sure that the judge doubts that they have a legitimate case. So it's crucial what is happening. Um, this is this is a major proceeding that is mm-hmm. unfolding, perhaps more major than the trial that Julian Assange is going to have, because the extent of the information we're getting, some of it would only happen in closed sessions in the United States. And that material that we've heard, the evidence about U.S. torture and war crimes, I don't think we would get that on an open, in an uh, a public hearing in the U.S. if it was even Deemed to be relevant to the charges against Julian Assange, uh, which is something maybe we'll get to later. But the charges that he fits that, that he that he faces are the 17 Espionage Act charges. Three of them, I understand, the government claims, are specifically targeted to the allegation that he exposed informants or confidential human sources of the U.S. government. Now, the other charges, which they don't really want to talk about because it puts them in the uncomfortable position of seeming like they are criminalizing journalism, Mm -hmm. actually go after him for simply receiving the material and not being authorized to receive it. It accuses him of engaging in a conspiracy with Chelsea Manning. Um, In fact, I flip that around. I think that what they believe is a conspiracy theory about Julian Assange, because what they would like us all to think is that, He recruited Chelsea Manning to work for WikiLeaks and purloin documents from the archives of the U.S. government so that WikiLeaks could have all of these sensational uh, releases that they benefited from greatly in 2010 and 2011. But there's no evidence that Chelsea Manning ever acted in a, a way in which she was just, you know, hired by WikiLeaks. Everything she did was independent because of her conscience. Um, and so, and we know she has such a conscience because I think she's given Julian Assange a tremendous gift, which is to go to jail for a year and refuse to testify before the grand jury that was impaneled to destroy WikiLeaks. And you know whether she says a single thing in support of him now, while this is uncover uh, unfolding, uh, I think it doesn't really matter because she did the most important thing: she frustrated the ability of the U.S. government to. Catch her in a perjury trap and turn her against Julian Assange and WikiLeaks for the purposes of having this unprecedented case uh be successful in the United States. That other charge you talk about, the computer crime offense, is one where they really talk in wishy washy words in the proceedings about how it's hacking. But in fact, Chelsea Manning already had access to the documents. She didn't need help from Julian Assange to get access to any databases, and I know this to be totally true from the trial against her back in 2013. And uh, what they allege is that he helped her uh, or was willing to help her crack a password, but they don't actually. If I I don't believe they've presented any evidence that he ever truly helped her crack the password. It's just that they talked about it and. They want to claim there was an agreement, and if you can claim an agreement, then you can claim there's a conspiracy, and that's how our justice system works.
1: So just a few clarifications, Kevin. So this, those hacking charge about supposedly trying to uh, crack a password, are they even talking about in this specific charge the database in which the documents were allegedly grabbed from by Chelsea Manning, or are they even talking about like a totally different database that they were theoretically discussing cracking the password for, for some other documents.
2: So the thing is that what Chelsea Manning wanted, uh, help with was, um, I believe at some point in the span of all of this, um, she, uh, they, I think they wiped the computer or there was something that happened and, uh, she wanted to be sure that she could get back into these databases and have her identity protected. And so she wanted help creating an account. Uh, we heard all kinds, so so just, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but we heard all kinds of arguments, uh, not arguments, we heard all, all kinds of evidence during her trial that was presented by the defense about how uh, people were creating improper logins they were they were creating like fake usernames that weren't necessarily clearly assigned to them so that they could go on and download movies and, and and music and put stuff on the computer that wasn't allowed by the u.s military and so you know this was a fairly common thing for people to try to create logins that they could do this and no, I don't, we don't even know that uh, it was for going through the military system. Um, I mean, she, she was trying to figure out how she could cloak herself and be on the computer without the government knowing that she was using the
0: computer. Can you speak to Assange's treatment in, was it prison or jail that he was in awaiting the extradition hearing? He's
2: in uh, the Belmarsh Security prison um and i understand that uh it's it's really rough um in fact you know he's getting up around like 5 a.m. in the morning every day and he has to be transported an hour and a half to the uh court which is in central london i believe um he's on a, in a different part of london incarcerated and he gets transferred and he has to go through I think uh, Stella Morris, who is his partner, mentioned that he's getting like x-rayed every morning and there's all this intrusive stuff he has to go through that is humiliating and distressing. And then he gets to the court. Uh, He's been in this facility. I mean, it's a maximum security facility. So he's had lots of restrictions imposed upon him that prevent him from truly preparing his case and working on it with his legal team. We heard on the first day of the extradition trial from one of his attorneys, Edward Fitzgerald, that it had been six months since he had met with Assange in person. A little bit of that is owed to the COVID-19 pandemic and the threat to prisoners. But again, I stress that I believe his due process rights have been systematically violated because he has been denied bail and not allowed to be released into home confinement while these proceedings Happened. He also served a 50-week
0: sentence for jumping bail. Wait, re- and reiterate com- how crazy that is, that he has not been able to meet with his legal counsel for six months.
2: Yeah, uh, sure. So this this is a constant. In fact, we are using time that could be for hearing from witnesses so that his legal team can meet with Assange at the courthouse because they are unable to get the time. At the prison or because, yeah, because the this is the best they can get. Uh, or also because after court, the authorities insist that they have to take Assange immediately back to Belmarsh Prison so they don't get time with Assange after to debrief following proceedings. You know, in the morning, he may not get there due to traffic or whatever until maybe, I don't know. Uh, within the half hour before court is supposed to start. So they don't get a chance to meet with him. Uh, so this has been a, a, an issue. Uh, it's been an issue to try to get him legal materials and, and evidence so he can go over it and be familiar with his case. He's had trouble participating. One of the reasons he asked to be let out of the glass box at the back of the room back in February was because He was having trouble hearing and following along. He wanted to be able to consult with his attorneys and ask questions and even urge them to ask certain questions, which he did today. Uh, Sorry, he did on the last day of the week and in the second week, we heard from Dean Yates, who was the Reuters chief, uh, the, the Baghdad bureau chief. And he testified about the collateral murder video. And one of the things you know, he pointed out was that he's criminalized for the release of Iraq rules of engagement. The U.S. government has not prosecuted him for the collateral murder video, but those were put out. But those were put out at about the same day, on the same day. It was connected. So WikiLeaks said we were going to show that the rules of engagement were violated by uh, the team that conducted this Apache helicopter attack and killed journalists. And so they put them out at the same time. So you can't really talk about them separately because they, although the government wants to, because I think so many people have been shocked and utterly appalled. And also Reuters, you know, like that was an embarrassment for the U S government that finally they learned how deceived they were by the U S government into believing that, you know, they, They had been taken seriously. I mean, they they found out so many lies that were being told to them about what happened that day.
0: Yeah, just briefly also mentioned just his the impact on his physical and mental health being in the prison. If I'm not mistaken, in solitary confinement uh, with the COVID outbreak there. I mean, it just seems like it would be really difficult for him. And I, I read somewhere that you know he could barely utter his name at one of the appearances. Just really devastating stuff, Kevin.
2: Yeah, uh, there's been a complete deterioration of his health ever since he has been sent to Belmarsh. But keep in mind that he spent the time from 2012 all the way through to April 2019 in an embassy with limited exposure to sunlight, so he was already... um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that an embassy is a prison, but he wasn't mm-hmm. able to go outside. So actually, <laughs> some people in prison might be in better shape because they get recreation and get to be exposed. Um, and also he had limited access access to medical care. I understand that when he left the embassy, he had horrible um, teeth and, and needed dental assistance. That They were not able to bring in machinery to treat him while he was in the embassy. Um, there's other ailments that he's developed. There's th- there's things with his legs and with his arms that even have needed treatment. Um, and so this, this deterioration of health has continued. They made a claim to the court that he was highly vulnerable to COVID. Um, I think there's some kind of lung condition that they claimed he might have in which COVID 19 would truly complicate and make worse if he ever contracted the virus. Um, you know, there's a there's a real question on the part of doctors that have assessed him as to what would happen if he is brought to the United States, how he would handle being put under potentially what are called special administrative measures, um, and uh, what he would do if he was incarcerated in a supermax prison like the one in in ADX uh, the ADX prison in Florence, Colorado, where higher uh, like national security defendants who are accused of terrorism offenses get thrown into. Um, And this idea that maybe his mental health has declined so much that he would be at risk of trying to commit suicide if brought to the U S because of his health. So I think it's, it's, uh, there've been dozens of doctors signed onto letters and warned that he should be released from prison and that the prosecution should be dropped simply because of what his state of health is. And and again, I, I think I said earlier, he's a 49-year-old. And I to me, I don't think it's outlandish to say, when we look at what this process will take over the next years, that he may not be alive. He may die during this because these appeals are going to take at least... Two or three years, probably more. And when he's extradited to the United States, it will be at least two or three years before he gets put on trial, given the scale of the case. And uh, at that point, he'd be in his mid-50s. And I don't know. He probably
0: could be a vegetable at that point. That's so sad. Oh my God. I it, Yeah. It just seems like this is not about him. This is about WikiLeaks as an institution, the threat it poses to entities like the national security state, the deep state apparatus, not the cartoonish one that Trump claims is after him. I mean, we saw the ripple effects of the um, Iraq war logs and the DNC email leaks. I mean, we saw the entire political establishment deflecting to blame Russia. This is what Russiagate stems from leading up to the 2016 election. We saw tech companies coordinating with the U.S. government to algorithmically censor alternative media sites. And now we see sites like YouTube, Kevin, banning coverage of, quote, leaked content. Yeah, It just seems like there's this enormous amount of effort going forward to prevent anything like WikiLeaks from ever functioning again, from leaking anything that could hurt the U.S. empire and its allies ever again.
2: I'd also like to, if if you'll allow me quickly work this in, I think your listeners would appreciate hearing this story because one uh, aspect of the extradition trial that has been really important to me has been the fact that we've heard testimony about U.S. torture and war crimes that were exposed by WikiLeaks during these proceedings. It is evidence that not only are they trying to Uh, violate the First Amendment rights of a journalist uh, because he he should be protected. Not only are they trying to expand what is permissible to do and and erode press freedom, but they're retaliating against uh, Julian Assange because he brought scrutiny to U.S. security agencies and to the U.S. military. And we heard on... Uh, September 18th, the last day of the second week that we heard from Khalid El who is a CIA uh, rendition, torture, uh, kidnapping survivor. He was abducted from Macedonia. Macedonia uh, detained him for several days and then a team of CIA men in black masks and black gear abducted him. Uh he was sodomized, he was shackled, he was spread-eagled on this aircraft. It was uh it flew to Afghanistan to a prison n- known as the Salt Pit and there he was held incommunicado. It later was learned that this was a mistaken identity, that he was not a terrorist and he stayed there for multiple weeks still He went on a hunger strike on the 34th day. He was force fed. Eventually they decided they were going to release him, but not before interrogating him and also letting him know that if he spoke about this to the media or local authorities, he was going to face some consequences. Potentially this was a threat backed by the CIA and the inspector general investigated it and confirmed it in his own report. And so he was given his suitcase and clothes. He was actually reverse renditioned, blindfolded, put in earmuffs again, sent back uh, to Europe. And there he was dropped in Albania. They left him there. He was walking around. Albanian police found him, wondered, you know, what are you doing here? Jesus and Christ. eventually <laughs> he ended up back in Germany. He's a German citizen. He's not from Macedonia he was there on vacation and then he began the arduous struggle of trying to win justice from the United States there was a freedom of information act lawsuit that the ACLU submitted but the records could not be released because they the government invoked the state secrets privilege but then we get to 20 Eleven And and WikiLeaks publishes or actually we get to 2010 and WikiLeaks publishes diplomatic cables and the diplomatic cables reveal that the German government was pressured not to investigate the 13 member team that abducted him and that they were also pressured to issue an arrest warrant that did not go after the jurisdiction in which these men were living. Uh, So and that was always bizarre we heard from a jo- from John uh, Goetz, who's a journalist that worked at Der Spiegel and spent a lot of time investigating this torture and rendition case and uh, you know he said i always thought it was bizarre but then i saw the cables and it revealed that the reason why a lot of this didn't add up in germany was the fact that the us government was saying there would be irreparable harm to relations if they went ahead and investigated this case and tried to prosecute those who were involved and so then Khaled El Masri took his case to the European Court of Human Rights, and the European Court of Human Rights ruled in his favor. Uh, they actually penalized Macedonia, making Macedonia pay damages to El Masri. It's one of the, you know, he had some a small amount of justice given out to him that day, and it was huge for him. And so he now got to this point in 2019 where despite the fact that he's he's experienced a lot of intimidation, there's been unusual events that he's survived, uh, unide- suspicious inv- individuals approaching his children, uh, getting boxed in on uh, the motorway. Uh, he has complained to police about being hounded, and they, th- they thought he was just mentally ill and tried to institutionalize him. But despite all of this, despite the fact that he faces these threats to himself that are backed by the cia he defied that and submitted testimony to the assange extradition trial in support of julian assange saying that he didn't believe he would have the kind of knowledge about what happened to him and he would not have won the kind of justice he was able to achieve without the work that wikileaks did and this goes to the public interest defense which you can't make under the espionage act but you can right now make it an extradition trial and you can make it clear to this court that what Julian Assange did was exposing something horrific like torture and rendition.
1: You did mention something about how you feel that this could be so open-ended that they technically could go after people who published um, like things like the NSA, like the Snowden documents. Is that what you meant when you said that? That you, you think that it's the implications are that vast that they could actually go back and prosecute some of those people if they wanted to get really crazy with the Espionage Act?
2: It's not figurative. I mean, uh, in the past months, we've seen the Justice Department expand their indictment against Julian Assange to include the fact that Julian Assange and WikiLeaks supported and helped Edward Snowden get out of Hong Kong. And oh, they were really? Yeah, help- and they were helping him to get no to shit. the uh, a third country we don't know where he was ultimately trying to go I, th- I don't think we know as of this still to this day we don't really know where he was headed we can presume i mean the thought is ecuador maybe because that's where julian assange was in an embassy yeah. maybe he was going to venezuela We don't know. We suspect it was Latin America. Could it be Bolivia? Well, I don't know. Probably not, though. They tried to... They they brought Evo Morales' plane down and bailed it. Uh, But he ended up trapped in Moscow after his passport was revoked, and they are going after Assange for allegedly trying to recruit systems administrators in his speeches at hacking conferences or just plain old conventions around internet freedom and privacy. And uh, so, I don't know. I don't, think, I don't think it's figured. Actually, in the indictment they expanded, they have unnamed co-conspirators in there. And one of those unnamed co-conspirators is Sarah Harrison, who flew with uh, Edward Snowden and, and, and shepherded him along to safety to make sure he got where he was supposed to go this is true source protection beyond what most establishment media journalists are willing to do to risk themselves. Um, and so now, you know, these are people um, like for her, particularly she's lived in Germany trying to hide from any potential extradition from, I think she's from the UK. So she's, she's trying to stay away from the clause of the U S government.
1: I, I had no idea. I must have completely missed that extra filing or or extra charge that they, that they had on her or um, the Snowden aspect of it. So this is only in the last few months they've done this?
2: Yeah, I, I don't think you need to apologize or feel like you're missing anything because this is troubling in the sense that you're not supposed to meaningfully change or should not be able to meaningfully change the case in this manner weeks before an extradition trial is to take place. In fact, the treaty says that you submit a packet by a deadline. The deadline was in June 2019, and then it should basically be like that for the rest of the the process. That's what the judge is going to hear. But they've added general allegations to it. Uh, Since you don't know about the Snowden stuff, you probably also don't know that they've added in allegations to try and link Julian Assange to a conspiracy with Lulsec and what was going on with the hacking that they engaged in back in, I want to say 2011. Um, and uh, some of that tangentially relates to the hack of Stratford private intelligence. Uh, yeah, the private yeah. intelligence. firm. I mean, we saw, kind of suspected this might get to that point. Jeremy Hammond was given a grand jury subpoena to appear before. The, the, that grand jury that was trying to destroy WikiLeaks, and uh, he didn't cooperate. Same as uh, Chelsea Manning, he didn't provide testimony. Uh, so now, you know, we've got star witnesses that may or may not be called in the future, uh, and one of them being Sabu, who was an FBI informant, and this operation to target Stratfor was basically set up, I think... There's a fair amount of evidence that it was like a sting operation to try and entrap Julian Assange and it failed. And in the process they ended up sacrificing Stratfor. I think we can say that Stratfor doesn't exist today because the FBI um, allowed their death to happen in the process of the sting operation.
1: Interesting theory. I never heard that before. I wanted to get into some of the politics of this because you know, I mean, we started out talking about how even a lot of the left no longer actively supports Julian Assange and and sort of ignores the legal implications, maybe because of a grudge they feel about the perception that he's helped Trump. And this, you know, this idea that this keeps coming up in different forms. So like one form that seems to have interfered with even my understanding of the narrative of the of this trial, because I sort of got mixed up about it when the media was like, you know, Trump did actually offer some, extend some kind of pardon to Assange via this alleged Dana Rohrbacher. I mean, Dana Rohrbacher apparently did actually visit him in the embassy, but the actual details of who, you know, who was going to agree to what, what it was actually about seems to get very convoluted and misrepresented and I just want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. This this was somehow Trump I mean allegedly trying to get Assange to say that it wasn't Russia. And that seems to be the only thing that's actually true about it. All the other things the media is trying to say about it that Julian Assange was going to agree that he wanted to get an ambassadorship, like you know, there's this weird narrative that he requested to Don Jr like an ambassadorship in Australia or something, and that there was some kind of deal that was actually a back and forth deal rather than Trump attempting to get off the hook during the Mueller probe. And that actually has nothing to do with the charges in this trial. That's all because so for people who are trying to construct this narrative that, oh, Trump and Assange are going to make some kind of deal where Trump is going to pardon him if he you know gives him... Seth Rich, or whatever people are saying that he has to prove Russia did do it, but this trial has absolutely nothing to do with the election. There th- currently, and I just want to get this clarification from you: there's no actual charges against Assange having to do with the 2016 election. Is that correct?
2: Yes, That's that is correct. Okay, is correct.
1: So that so the idea that he, you know, we can get like, let off for some kind of 2016 leaking charge makes no sense. There's no, there is no criminal charge. His name only appeared in the molar probe, but he's not charged in any way in that. It's just, he's sort of, a you know, as an evidence point, I guess, in that. Um, but like, I, I, I don't really have, you know, I'm trying to understand why the media is trying to construct that narrative here. Um, and then when you throw into the mix this idea that Trump is actually saying, "Hey, why don't you know? What about Snowden? What if I pardon Snowden?" I'm, my head is just sort of spinning from it. I don't really know how to understand it politically speaking. And I'm I'm wondering, like you've been in this for so long, Kevin. Like, what is your what is your perspective on why Trump is floating this pardon of Snowden now? You know, wh- where did that even come from? Um, what it what did actually maybe happen with that Dana Rohrabacher meeting? What do you what is your take on that? And I guess whatever else you want to say, because I'm, you know, I don't even know what else I mentioned in that string of thoughts I just threw at you, but, um, but yeah, like what are your, what are your thoughts on all that stuff?
2: Yeah. So first off you're asking me this question on a good day because, uh, the, on the day that we're recording, because Jen Robinson, who is part of the Assange legal team submitted testimony on this part and offer. So I can give you some clarity about what she said, I'll just kind of like briefly skim through it since it's of interest to you. She says that on August 15th, 2017, uh, she was asked to meet with Assange at the Ecuador embassy. And when she arrived, he was uh, he informed her that a U.S. congressman requested a meeting with him. That's Dana Rohrabacher um, and Assange had not yet been indicted in the U.S. So we should be clear about that. Dana Rohrabacher attended the embassy. He came with Charles Johnson, who is this right- wing journalist who has really <laughs> wow. kind of has really kind of fallen out of favor. I mean, nobody hears about him anymore and I'm not sure exactly what he's doing. Uh, during this meeting, though, Rohrabacher and, and Johnson made clear that they wanted uh, Assange to believe that they were acting on behalf of the president. They stated that Trump was aware of and had approved of them coming to meet with Assange to discuss the proposal and that they'd have an audience with the president to discuss the matter on their return to Washington, D.C. Now, I uh, pause for a moment just to say that we know that Roger Stone has been a pathological liar when it comes to WikiLeaks and what he knew about what they were going to do with the Podesta emails and anything from the Clinton campaign. It's just been proven, and... Uh, you know, he claimed to like represent WikiLeaks or he claimed to be somehow aligned with it. And WikiLeaks had to actually tell him to shut up because he was not a representative. He could not speak for what WikiLeaks was going to do. This happened in 2016. Yeah. So Rohrabacher explained that he wanted to resolve the speculation about Russia involvement in the DNC leaks. He said he regarded the speculation as damaging to us Russian relations. It was reviving old cold war politics that it'd be in the best interest of the U.S. if the matter could be resolved. And they explained to Assange that, uh, that the source of the leaks would be of interest to President Trump. So Mr. Assange uh, had not disclosed the source of the publications. Um, and Rohrabacher and Mr. Assange talked about the situation. Uh, they discussed the, the free speech implications of any indictment and the extradition request for Mr. Assange for his publishing work for WikiLeaks, um, and that Chelsea Manning had her sentence commuted. Uh, It goes on. This is a statement that was submitted by Jen Robinson to mention that uh, they talked about what might be necessary to get him out of the embassy um, and and how they could come up with some kind of solution so Assange could get on with his life. The proposal was that he identified the source for the 2016 election publications in return for some form of pardon, assurance, or agreement, which would both benefit Trump politically and prevent U.S. indictment and extradition. The meeting concluded on this basis, and Assange never provided any information to the congressman, and after the meeting, there were reported statements to the media that confirmed this, this proposal, um, and there's media interviews that are available but this is as far as this ever went and in fact the prosecution's position which may actually be believable is that they don't dispute that a pardon was offered to assange but they do dispute i think whether or not dana was actually representing the trump administration it's this bizarre world we live in robbie where like people have claimed time and time again to be acting for trump and they actually aren't doing anything with his approval.
1: Yeah, it is very strange. And I mean, as you said, uh, obviously Julian Assange did not disclose to Rohrbacher or, or anyone else who the source was. And he continues to maintain that position. So.
2: so right. So, so because, that's.
1: That, oh, sorry. Go ahead.
2: No, I just wanted to add because to do so would violate entirely the policy of WikiLeaks to protect and keep sources anonymous.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And that's, I guess, that's where it gets a little complicated with the whole Seth Rich angle of all this, because it's something that I tend to, I'll I'll admit, I tend to avoid it when covering, um, generally talking about all this stuff we've been talking about, because I'm not convinced myself based on what I've seen that Seth Rich is a leaker. Um, Some people, you know, as you said, there are people who act time and time again as if they are spokespeople for Trump. Some people kind of do the same thing with WikiLeaks. It's sometimes unclear at times who's speaking for WikiLeaks or who's, you know, still really an ally or not. Craig Murray used to say that he met someone on a park bench who gave him thumb drives and he implied that there were multiple people, you know, involved in some kind of insider leaking operation. So I don't know if this is sort of noise to deflect from who the actual source is. I don't, you know, and it's hard for me to wrap my head around the idea that Seth Rich, you know, maybe it's possible, I suppose, that he had the DNC emails, but the Podesta emails, you know, that's a that was a different leak, um, that, you know, that came from a totally different source. So I don't know, like, do, what do you personally tell people? Because I'm sure this comes up with you, Kevin, when when people want to talk to you about this subject, like, what do you, how do you address the whole Seth Rich angle of it? Like, what do you, what do you say? To people, and even like, what do you think about it? Just you know, you know, from from seeing this play out for the last three years.
2: Well, I, I honestly don't talk about it that much. There, there aren't many people who ask me about it, simply because it. I mean, it's not central to a lot of what is unfolding with Julian Assange. And uh, trial, it ex- yeah. It exists in the background, and in fact, uh, you know, there's been. If you look at the Russia investigation reports that have come out of congress they they truly do try to use whatever went on with seth rich to slander julian assange and make it seem like he's a very crude person who was lying about what happened to seth and you know and i i don't really know i i if i'm being totally honest i'd have to confess that i'm not quite sure what happened with seth rich And I have no reason to not believe the official story, but if you asked me, I actually don't really know the official story. I haven't done a whole lot of work except to know that there are some interesting cases playing out. Uh, And in fact, one of them, I think, is asking for a deposition from Julian Assange. um, And that there, there, there are sorts of things that... I think they kind of... I think one of the cases it's very minor but it involves defamation um, anyways you know what i what i believe is that what we talk about the media one of the things that the establishment media has truly failed in its obsessive coverage of Russiagate to do is fully document and map out the timeline of these leaks and i think it's tremendously confusing when certain things happened And obviously the intelligence agencies have their own narrative, and I recently read the volume that came out that focused on WikiLeaks, and there's a lot of disinformation in that that I have not had a chance yet to challenge, but I I want to explicitly challenge it following the extradition trial proceedings. But the intelligence agencies have somewhat filled in for Congress what they think happened. But I mean, the media itself has not tried to map it out so we can know. They simply do not care whether we know exactly what Guccifer 2.0 was doing, what you know the DNC leaks was versus what the Podesta emails was. And it, it, it's all very confusing. And Julian Assange had this comment when there was a, a, initially discussion about who was behind this and whether it involved Russian tel- intelligence that he would say that you know, he he really didn't like that a lot of these leaks were being conflated as being like one single leak and that people weren't keeping it separate and that they were all thinking they all went through WikiLeaks to be published or that the sources all had something to do with the Podesta emails. And so I think to this day, people think all of the documents that came out about the DNC back in 2016 all ran through WikiLeaks. Um, and had some relation to what they did. And that's just not true. Um, and I also think that if you look at the Mueller report, they don't prove that WikiLeaks had someone who was... Um, uh, they, there's no proof. They have, the government doesn't actually know if there was a Russian cutout that provided the information to WikiLeaks. They just say that's what they suspect. Um, and the other thing is uh, you just simply... That they flat out don't know. Uh, I, I mean, they don't really address the question of whether it's a hack or a leak. They don't confront the evidence uh, from the study that's been done by Bill Binney, uh, an NSA whistleblower, and and others in the Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity group. Uh, that also includes Ray McGovern, who have supported examining the possibility that it was a leak instead of a hack. That somebody took. Took a thumb drive and downloaded it, and because they've looked at internet speeds and suggested that overseas you could not have had the kind of internet speeds that happened for the 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 download of the the the, the move the way the information moved. Without getting too technical, because I'm actually not that much of an expert, that the speeds didn't seem reasonable if this was somebody from Russia. And also, I'll add in in, in concluding this that. The Vault Seven materials from the CIA that were published by WikiLeaks contain a document that indicated the CIA has a has a uh, some kind of a tool or a, a way that they can actually um, disguise what they're doing by giving their cyber activity Russian fingerprints, so that it looks like they're from somewhere else.
1: Exactly. I mean, which raises a whole. Series of questions, and you can get really tinfoil with it, and think, you know, in <laughs> yes. theory, a domestic intelligence agency could have done this and tried to put Russian fingerprints on it. I mean, it's possible. What, why they would do that, I have no idea. But I, I and the VIPs thing isn't is interesting because um, I don't know if they're actually trying to say they think that Seth Rich did it specifically there, and and but I and I can't remember if I've heard Benny Th- saying, you know, talking about Rich. But yeah, I mean, it is interesting how the mainstream media has also tried to use that as a point of leverage against Assange to make it appear that this has something to do with his current indictment. And maybe, I mean, there could be a kernel of truth inside there that really just means that maybe Trump, maybe it's possible Trump actually wanted to get off the hook and get some kind of statement from Assange about Russian intelligence not being the source Mm-hmm. And maybe it's a maybe he's you know maybe the the charges are even harsher because Trump wants to punish him. I, I mean I have no idea. Yeah, it, it, the idea that he's somehow trying to work out a deal with him, it it just doesn't it just doesn't hold up in the face of the actual facts of what happened here. But I mean, do you think there's going to be maybe just before I let you go in terms of just the trial? Do you you know do you think that the defense for Assange here? What, like, what is your opinion of their presentation so far, just in terms of how effective it's been? Because I know that they brought in this guy that you told the story of. I mean, they actually put him on the stand, didn't they, to tell his extradition or his um, rendition story?
2: They tried to do it. They tried to. Yeah. They tried to, but the technical difficulties were so bad that they ended up only reading a statement um, and also... Uh, the prosecutor contested having him give live testimony, which yeah, led to Julian Assange having, uh, uh, you know, saying to the judge that you are not going to silence a torture victim in this court, and he objected, and then she was like, "Well, you can raise that with your attorney, and please sit down." And uh, they had an interpreter lined up to do all of this, and in it ended up being that they just read a statement into the record that came from Khalid al-Masri. And so uh, we were deprived of seeing him. And I guess, again, you can say that CIA torture survivors are still silenced in Western courtrooms.
1: Of course. Yeah. And they, and I could see the, from the judges, you know, from the, the, the judges political lens on this, they're probably like, we're not going to let Assange do anything to get political leverage or any news coverage that could seem favorable to his argument, like in terms of making the CIA look bad.
2: The thing that I wanted to get in here is that there was a interesting angle to the way that they were entering his testimony. So he put the statement into the record. And in order to do that, the prosecutors have to agree to it. And I think there was some panic on the part of the prosecution team that by agreeing to this testimony, they were going to be validating that he was tortured <laughs> and subject to rendition. And then, and, and then in, a, in a odd way, it would have been better off to have him give live testimony where they could contest what he was saying. And instead, they ended up with this, which I don't know if toward the end of the trial they're going to challenge certain evidence that has been brought forward and whether it's relevant. But you asked about the presentation. So let me say that I do think the legal team has done a fairly comprehensive job of addressing what needs to be grappled with in this case, as far as I know it. We've heard multiple journalists take the stand and talk about the redaction processes that were uh, employed when handling these documents, which is important since a core part, a, a key part of this Indictment is suggesting that Julian Assange was irresponsible with the material and didn't care. Caused harm. Uh, yeah, yeah, all of that. And they've proven that wrong with um, a half dozen uh, or so people who have taken the stand. We've heard from scholars on journalism that have outlined the risks to press freedom if this case goes forward. We've had defense attorneys. What we're waiting to hear from is... People who are his doctors or psychiatrists that can talk about his health and what would happen to him if he's extradited to the U.S. We have a few more people to testify about U.S. prison conditions and what he would suffer in pre-trial confinement and in post-trial confinement and how that would likely violate the human rights charter that the U.K. is supposed to follow. Uh, you know, they have protections against torture that are in. I mean, in some ways. Europe always seems to have better human rights laws than the United States and that they're a lot they, they are okay with incorporating that into their protections for citizens. You know, on the other hand, the UK does not have a First Amendment and it does have an official secrets act, so there are there are trade offs here. Oh, and also it's prohibited by law to live stream the proceedings of a court case. So uh, they can't put a live feed on online and let everyone around the world tune in to this important global this case with global implications but here in the US we would be able to uh share a live feed as it's not against any sort of law to share live feeds of court proceedings so they haven't had those witnesses and also and I think this is a nice finale for the episode we have not gotten into fully the allegations um around the UC Global Private Security Company, I don't know how much you know about this, that is based in Spain, that was involved in targeting Julian Assange while he was living in the embassy, and it was with the support of the CIA, and he was threatened with kidnappings, and they they, they talked about maybe poisoning him, and they were targeting visitors and journalists that were coming in and out of the embassy. And uh, this is a big deal because there's a case being litigated in Spain alleging that people's privacy were violated, that laws were violated in Spain. David Morales, the owner, uh, faces some considerable charges for what happened with this company. And what happened with this embassy is the kind of activity that you would think would disqualify bringing a prosecution against Julian Assange. Back in the 19 back in 1971 in fact it saved Daniel Ellsberg because they uh, Richard Nixon had operatives burglarize Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office yes. and uh, that eventually led to his case being dismissed with prejudice in fact Daniel Ellsberg did not get convicted of violating the Espionage Act because of what the government did in targeting a psychiatrist's office and trying to... Uh, you know, find ways that they could harm him or drive him crazy. And so like this action, these actions that we've seen related to Assange should work in such a way that this case is dropped. Um, obviously we haven't seen that happen, but that's my position that there should be no question that that kind of evidence should be enough to oppose and, 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 and for a judge to say this case can't proceed
1: well, that's the, you were thinking logically that's what that's what one would think if they were applying, <laughs> applying a historical and legal precedence to this. But things have just gotten so weird as we're talking about. I mean, the fact that this is a private security company that was doing this, I mean, it probably just creates more layers of opaqueness, uh, un- unaccountability, maybe even less of a paper trail. So it, it kind of makes sense in a weird way how it just ultimately doesn't matter because it's like... I, I mean I, I don't you're actually telling me all this for the first time, so I don't know the details of it, but
2: well, if you want me to take just a few minutes to sure. quickly give you some details, I think for and, sure, yes, please. Uh, your listeners would appreciate knowing that they were bugging the ladies' bathroom at the embassy. so they were hired by the embassy. this was they were supposed to be doing security for the oh. embassy, but then they turned it into a spy operation against Julian Assange, this company that was brought in by Ecuador government and uh okay. this most of this happened after this is important context this happened after so Rafael Correa was the president of Ecuador he's the one who granted asylum to Julian Assange when he was no longer president and Lenin Moreno who's a more like left of center center right kind of a figure when he took power he no longer wanted Julian Assange in the embassy and so they were willing to put him under a pressure campaign to basically drive him out of the embassy. Uh, they were, they were engaged in a harassment of him and everyone that was visiting him. And there are dossiers that were created on visitors. So people's phones were taken. They took, uh, scans of their SIM cards. They have files. Uh, there's, uh, Washington reporter Ellen Nakashima, one of the people, tried to steal her phone battery from her, and then she realized she didn't have it, came back and grabbed it, and so they were like, okay, well, we'll have to give you your cell phone battery. Um, But there were ways that they were trying to break into and worm into journalists' phones so they could track them after they left the embassy. This is a war on journalism. Like This is part of the war on journalism, going after people who wanted to interview and visit Julian Assange. They they violated attorney-client privilege. Attorneys thought something was going on in the embassy, so Julian Assange was like, let's meet in the women's bathroom. Well, it turns out that they bugged the women's bathroom, and so that didn't exactly remove them from being heard. You, yeah, We see videos. There's a great documentary, um, The USA Against Julian Assange. It's by the German public broadcaster ARD, um, NDR put it together, but it aired on ARD. It's on YouTube. I recommend people go watch it, uh, especially for the chilling quotes from Leon Panetta, who acts as the public face for this prosecution, and laughs when he is told details about the CIA-backed spying operation and says, well, that's just how business is done. <laughs> and he's actually like like has this evil clownish grin on his face that this is what happened to Julian Assange. Oh, Julian Assange had two children while he was in the embassy. Um, and, uh, they, you know, his, he, he, he fell in love, met his partner, Stella Morris. Um, they put up a tent and I assume that's where, uh, it, it, the, you know, where the baby making happened. And, uh, then, uh, when the, his child was born and they brought it in and introduced his baby to him, the this company took interest and was trying to ID the baby and 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 use it to go after Assange. So they stole a diaper, a dirty diaper. Holy and, shit! And uh, were, tr- we're we're but you can't actually do that kind of a test and figure out who Fuck. the father is. So it ended up not really working. And, uh, but again, they remained really focused on his, who Stella is now his fiance. And, uh, they made, remained really focused on her and, and who she was and why she was at the embassy so often. And, uh, so his kids have been targeted. Um, he has two children and I um, mean, that's another part of this case is, you know, what's going to happen to them. Is he going to ever get to be a father for them? Um, certainly, that is at stake here.
1: Very sad. I mean, yeah, that's a whole other angle to it that I didn't even, I, I, I kind of missed. I mean, I knew that he, his rights were being violated in terms of surveillance there, but I didn't know the the details of it, the scope of it, Jesus Christ. Um, I know this is just kind of out of left field, but there was one question I asked you earlier that I still wanted to get your opinion on that I, I think you, you missed uh, about. Why do you think, all of a sudden there's this campaign coming from Trump and sort of propped up by several, you know, of Trump's surrogates in, in Congress and in the Senate about pardoning Edward Snowden. Where where is that even coming from? Do you think he's trying to win over maybe people who are his supporters but are don't like the way that he that his administration is going after Assange. I mean, I, I don't I'm completely baffled by it. So I'm curious what you think about it.
2: I don't know how this got to Trump and he took it seriously, but I can't be upset about it. I I actually, I actually wrote about the freak out from people who were neoconservatives and also from centrist Democrats that Donald Trump. Like Susan Rice. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. She, Yeah. yeah, she was very appalled and I don't remember her comment exactly, but there, and there were other people who, um, I think Jennifer Rubin, right? I think mm-hmm. uh, she I saw was that. upset. Uh, so this was something that led to a collective freakout, And I'm not really sure. I don't actually think he's taking this seriously. I don't believe that he's looking into the pardon and neither does Snowden. Um, I think he said as much because he was just on Joe Rogan and did a very popular interview. Um, and I don't think he believes that trump knows too much about his case i mean he's on the record saying that edward snowden should be executed or hanged but how much did he really look into edward snowden's case and what and what snowden did i'm sure a lot of that was just partisan and in fact i think some of what he was expressing was blaming barack obama for letting these leaks happen on his watch so it came from a kind of right wing national security context and uh now i mean he was asked and he said that he has heard from some people who say he's been treated unfairly he's heard from other people who think he should be brought here and put on trial so he was going to take a look at it well i don't really think that means a whole lot i mean i think it just means that i did, and that to me sounds like um a, a quick non-answer to a question. make it seem like you care but you really haven't done anything on it at all and we've heard nothing since that comment we don't have any indication that he's looking into this to pardon edward snowden uh but the you know this probably comes out of the right-wing libertarian wing of the republican party i think thomas massey just in a mash used to be a part of this until he became an independent because he's disgusted with trump And these people uh, see that Edward Snowden revealed this information. And in fact, he was just vindicated because an appeals court ruled that the program, ruled again that the bulk records collection program was illegal. And uh, so it's a growing feeling. I think a majority of the country believes that he should be uh, allowed to come back home They believe he should at least have a fair trial to uh, explain why he did what he did, which is what he's been demanding. He actually hasn't requested a pardon. He's asked for the right to be put on trial and to tell the American people why he did what he did and have a jury of his peers decide whether he should have any time in prison for revealing this information. And um, I know that's very idealistic and maybe naive on his part, but, you know, I mean, what he wants is a chance to explain himself to the American people in an official context. And uh, his book has been hugely popular. Um, he's he says it's got some of the best top ratings on uh, you know Amazon as one of the best autobiographies written in recent history. That's extremely well liked by anyone who picks it up. And I I just, you know, I don't think that anybody in the Trump administration is going to allow this to get traction. Um, I mean, it seems to me that you would go above and beyond to make sure that Donald Trump didn't pardon Edward Snowden if you were anyone in these intelligence agencies. uh, If you're Mike Pompeo, certainly isn't going to allow it. I don't think that. Uh, Bill Barr is going to allow it. Bill Barr actually spoke out against the pardon, and he runs the Justice Department. So I'm not sure that this is going to be happening. But if it did, the reason would be to say that the—I mean, to me, if I was going to sell this to Donald Trump, what I would say is that, Donald Trump, you believe that there's a deep state that is out to get you and bring down your administration. Well, Edward Snowden exposed the deep state. He exposed how secret surveillance programs work. And, uh, you know, you remember Carter Page was targeted, uh, with a FISA warrant that was deemed to be completely, um, inappropriate and, and, uh, was, was based on a lot of falsehoods in order to get that warrant. And uh, he was targeted, um, uh, that was a violation of his rights. And, uh, they, they, he, they were going after people who were connected to your campaign, associates of your campaign and, uh, you know that that's because the surveillance state was targeting you politically. And so you could turn around, you could pardon Edward Snowden, and you could say that like you're not run or ruled by the deep state, that you're not going to answer to them, that you're an independent president. And I believe that there's a lot of people in this country that are actually like that. And it might win him some votes in 2016 at a time when he's really struggling for a lot of reasons that we don't need to get into at the moment. But, uh, you know, I I doubt that the officials around him would let this happen. In the same way that there have always been saboteurs around him that limit his ability to remove military forces from, like, Afghanistan or Syria or other countries in the Middle East, um, I predict that they would try to undermine his ability to issue a pardon of Snowden.
1: Yeah, I mean most definitely and and probably just maybe he's smart enough on some level to know just by even just suggesting it that the people out there who might be willing to vote for him if he had if he does that will just be enticed by the mere suggestion and because a lot of the things that he's been doing has you know sound really good you know even like removing all the troops you know from germany you know like a random thing he wants to do Uh, (laughs) whether he actually does it or not I, i don't know but he it sounds you know I could see people being like, "Yeah, this—I'll vote for him if he pardons Snowden." I guess that's how I feel about it. But
2: we're so cynical that there's a lot of people who just like hang their hats hats on anything, even though you know it would be hard for me to support him if he pardoned Snowden. I mean, it would be like, and I'm I'm not planning to. I, I I'm not really going to get into that here on the show. But uh, you know, my point is that. Hearing that he would pardon Snowden if that officially happened, it you'd have to go, this is what I want you to do. This is what I would want a president to do. And, uh, yeah. and now continue on and please pardon the rest of the people who have been targeted with the Espionage Act unfairly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it's also interesting to see the, as you say, these sort of centrist Democrats um, attacking Trump. Because you know, saying how traitorous it would be if he pardoned Snowden, well, it's it's kind of odd in a way to see Susan Rice going so hard at him for that. When and what makes you wonder what she thought when Obama commuted Chelsea Manning's sentence? Was she secretly fuming behind the scenes? Was she? I mean, it's what because how is that much different? I mean, why why get so outraged at what Snowden did? So I don't know. It's just it's it's it could also be just seen as bait, like to get some of these Dems to attack him. You know, from the seemingly from the right, it just makes him look good uh, I, once again.
2: And you like <laughs> theories, so let me just put this to <laughs> yeah, you sure. that it's come up during the extradition trial that potentially some of what's happening to Julian Assange is a response to Barack Obama commuting the sentence of Chelsea Manning, and that there might be people within the U.S. government who would like to reinforce the fact that this was criminal activity in their minds i don't necessarily think it was but criminal activity in their sure. minds that happened and they have to remind us all the public that what chelsea manning did was not whistleblowing and what wikileaks did is not journalism and uh, that this case is sort of trying to compensate for the fact that people might have thought after chelsea manning was com- had her sentence commuted that you know she was just off the hook for whatever happened.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that, that's an interesting theory, one that I, I'm happy to entertain. And it just also makes me think that, um, you know, looking back at the timing of the commutation of Chelsea Manning's sentence is also interesting because wasn't it after the 2016 election that Barack Obama, you know, right before his leaving, technically leaving office, he decided that? and there was enormous pressure at that point, I feel like to make Obama get on board of this idea that Russia and WikiLeaks work together to throw the election and for him to even commute Chelsea's sentence at all is just surprising on a political level, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, those final months of his presidency are interesting because his statements about what WikiLeaks may or may not have done were always kind of tepid. I mean, he didn't, he didn't, lean into it the way the clinton campaign did uh he very much
1: did not yeah
2: yeah and then january 2017 came and uh you know my view is she ended up getting commuted her her, she ended up having clemency because there were people within lgbtq plus organizations that had her back and knew the duress that she was going through, um, the trauma that she was surviving at Fort Leavenworth, and came to the White House and and said, you know, you should do something. I mean, the way that he talked about it when granting the clemency was that, uh, and you know, this is what I objected to: the way he offered clemency. I objected to because he picked Chelsea Manning against Edward Snowden. I don't know if you recall this or not, but he said that Edward Snowden fled while chelsea manning uh faced the charges and did do time in prison and in fact her sentence was in his mind uh disproportionate compared to other cases which is actually true she got a 35 year sentence and there were there were no other cases that had ever been ever been charged with that long of a sentence and you know as we're have been talking about Julian Assange. This is why people believe Julian Assange would get a 30 to 40-year sentence, because of the source, Chelsea Manning, got a 35-year military prison sentence.
1: Which is technically not true, because, I mean, what we're seeing is up to 150 years oh, sentence. Oh, well... I mean, so, potentially, I guess, worst-case scenario.
2: Well, so, um he, he could get 175 years, but 75. my personal my personal that's the maximum under the statutes but my belief is that if we're if we're realistic about how the system how prosecutors truly do go after people it probably would be more like they recommend 30 or 40 years
1: got it well yeah there's you know i guess we'll just have to see how this plays out um it's uh it's really scary though that this it's all finally you know Resolving in a way that doesn't look good. I mean, whether he's extradited or not, the charges are just so serious that the fact that they would even put this indictment through is is chilling enough. Um, and I'm worried for the future. But let's just let's just all continue to <laughs> to fight for journalistic freedoms in any way that we can. And you you're doing really great work. I, I really appreciate like how you know long you've been at this and how dedicated you are to this. You've been in, you know, you've been covering trials for a long time specifically, which I know at times could probably be very boring, Um, having, you know, waiting around for a long time. So (laughs) you put in a lot of hours and and time and dedication to this cause. Um, And uh, yeah, I just wanted to thank you for that, Kevin. And if you have anything you want to leave our listeners with, go ahead and and let them know. And also anything you want to plug, uh, any, any projects you have coming up and
2: let me do some plugging just so that anyone who is interested in the reporting that I've been discussing, if they want to follow along and hear or and read what comes out in these in the third and fourth weeks, I do expect this to stretch on until the end of September, pretty close to the end of September. We have a lot more testimony to go through. So if uh, there are three ways. so if you, Go to dissenter.substack.com. I put together a newsletter uh, that I launched um, several months ago, and I'm using it to, for this month, to send every day a written report to people's inboxes on what happened during that day of the extradition trial. So if you just want something to come to your inbox automatically, you could subscribe to it at dissenter.substack.com. It's a paid newsletter, but during the extradition trial, I've made it entirely free so that people can get it. I'm sending it out to anyone who is on the list. And then I'm doing end-of-day court reports that will appear on uh, YouTube, and I put them in threads. So the other thing is that every day of these proceedings, which are starting at like 10 a.m. in the U.K., which is 5 a.m. Eastern in the United States, which for you is worse because that's like two o'clock a.m. in the morning. you go to at K Gastola, G-O-S-Z-T-O-L-A, that's my handle, uh, you'll find my threads, which are live tweets, live updates on the witnesses that are testifying in the extradition trial and what's going on with the prosecution. And the defense back and forth and how the judge, you know, I, I really get into it all um, and provide a context. And so that's a way if, if you want more of this, if you if you are uh, would like to explore this further, that's how you can follow that reporting. So thanks for having me. I really appreciate having the platform to talk with you and your listeners.
1: Let's hope something good happens. You know, uh, <laughs> I know it's not looking very good. Um, and you've actually made me actually more concerned during this conversation than I was before, but hopefully there, there's still some light at the end of the tunnel and, uh, people will figure out a way to truly fight for press freedoms and, and really take a stand. I mean, the insidiousness of all this internet censorship alone is, you know, I feel like people are not really equipped to fight that. And that's sort of coming at us from a different angle. Um, so there's a whole lot of concerns we're facing. I think with with journalism moving forward, um, but you're doing great work. Um, Shadowproof is doing great work. Are there any other names you want to shout out to for people who are? Well, sure. I
2: in- I have a few colleagues that I would name that are doing excellent work on this. Uh, Richard Medhurst has a, a YouTube channel. Uh, he's been doing some great uh, tweeting and and coverage of this. Tariq Haddad has uh, his own site and has been posting reports about this, and he's in the UK. Um, I believe Mohammed El- 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 El-Mazi um, is uh, someone who's been covering the court's proceedings for Sputnik and uh, doing some some great coverage, live tweeting during the day. and uh, And then... Uh, there are some court reporters here and there that have had some good live updates on proceedings. Um, and then there's also been people like Rebecca Vincent at Reporters Without Borders, a press freedom group, one of the only groups that were given credentials as uh, non-journal non-press um, and able to follow. and And she's got some important opinions that she's shared about what is happening with these proceedings. So those are people I would mention. Um, I also mentioned them because they've had my back uh, because uh, on the final day of the second week, I was locked out of the proceedings um, unfairly and had to spend the entire morning trying to regain access. And eventually the court vindicated me and apologized and said that they were wrong to lock me out, that it was due to technical difficulties and they should have allowed me to follow the courtroom feed, but uh, I had to struggle for like three or four hours.
1: That's uh, that's annoying. Well, at least you're able to gain access, and, and you'll still be covering it. And they actually formally apologized to you. That's yes. that's kind of yeah. interesting. No,
2: that, that was a huge victory. Um, yeah. and, uh, I have a lawyer in the UK that has been supportive of 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 me. So I was I was working with them to let the court know that I had been locked out.
1: You're a serious journalist. You, you give, you know, indie journalists a really good name and, and a lot of credibility by what you're doing. <laughs> so, so thank you, Kevin. Hi, this is Robbie Martin again. If you liked what you heard on Media Roots Radio today, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber of ours for only $5 a month by subscribing to media roots radio you get access to one exclusive bonus episode per month and right now we're doing a three-part series on the freemasonic history of the united states which is a podcast marathon 15 hours total of content thanks for listening everybody take care